Welcome to Nostalgia Marcana. I'm your host, Doug Leaf. Each episode of this podcast, we will look back on the pop cultural ephemera that remains in our cultural zeitgeist today and try to understand why we remain enchanted all these years later. This week, we will be revisiting... Today we're talking about a show from the 80s involving a bunch of characters in their 60s. Uh, I, I thought of when I was first getting into this topic of uh, the song When I'm 64 by the Beatles, uh, Will You Still Need Me, Will You Still Need Me? And that song predates this show by 20 years. So uh, this whole thought about what we're going to do with ourselves when we're older has always been part of our our fabric and our, our kind of ongoing discussions with ourselves about aging and where we fit in. So I think today is a perfect to- day to talk about the Golden Girls. And I have a guest here to help me do that, someone who knows way more about the Golden Girls than I do. Uh, he's a pal and a confidant, my friend Ryan. Say hi, Ryan Merlot. Hey, Doug. How are you and everybody? I'm really excited to talk about this show. And I'm glad we have you here because I know you know a lot more. You probably have forgotten more about the Golden Girls than I've been able to cram into my head. Yeah, I, it's, 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 it's one of those shows that I need a, and background noise when I go to sleep. And I literally play because I know it so well. I, don't, I know what's going to happen and I know the dialogue. So it's a perfect background show when I'm falling asleep. Yeah, when I went back to it to, to watch a few episodes to get ready for this, I had kind of the same thought that... This show is kind of like a warm blanket. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> 100%. It's, it is a warm blanket. Yeah. Yes, yes. And so this, I think everybody has a, a show, especially a comedy, yeah. that is that for them. Yes. Uh, and I know this is that for you. So, yeah. so let me start off by asking you, you know, you, I asked which topic you would want to do, and you picked the Golden Girls. So, right. Uh-huh. So let, I want to hear why. Well, at first you said, what, you're, what are you nostalgic about? And the thing about the Golden Girls is I'm not only nostalgic about the Golden Girls as like the first, having memories of when I discovered them, but situational nostalgia, which each episode, you know, there's a different topic. And a lot of times it's one of those shows that tackle very, very deep topics in a comedic way. But you can remember things that you, when like, um, for instance, uh, you know, one of the episodes, Rose got a blood transfusion and the, the doctor, uh, the hospital sent her a note and said she needed to come in because it was, they thought that maybe the blood was um, infected with the HIV virus. So she went and got an STD test and she had to wait for a couple of days and all of the anxiety and the kind of the stress and all of her friends that rallied around her to support her. I remember my first STD test and I remember the people who were around me. And every time I watch that episode, I think back to that and think about how wonderful those people were and how wonderful that moment was. It was stressful, but I got through it. Um, so, but the first time I actually, it's interesting, but the, how I got to love the golden girls was I was an intern in New York city and I went there and I had no friends. I knew no one in New York. I was just, I went there to intern at Good Morning America, and I lived on 33rd and 3rd with a guy who I had never met before. I got his, you know, just renting a room, and he had, now this was like 2003, so before DVDs, he had 10,000 VHS tapes. The man would record everything. He had a recording of every episode of The Golden Girls, from inception to like, ending. And so I was bored. And, you know, in the beginning, because I didn't have very, I didn't know anybody or have many friends. So I started watching them because I had heard that the Golden Girls were kind of cool. And I fell in love with it. And then as I started meeting friends, we start, they started coming over to my apartment and we would watch it together. 
And it kind of was like, every time I watched the Golden Girls, I think back to this amazing six months that I spent in New York City. You know, when I was in college, I had no, um, you know, no uh, obligations. I was just fun. You know, I didn't have a, I didn't have to worry about finances. You know, everything was perfect in one of those idyllic situations and idyllic times. And so that's what I remember about the Golden Girls. See, I had no idea you came to it so much later. I, I, I did. Yeah, that's interesting because I encountered it in the wild in the 80s when uh -huh. it was on. Mm -hmm. But my memories of it are tied with, as you would expect, uh, older ladies. Yes. And specifically yes. My, my grandmother. Right, 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 right. Um, and so I, I remember, you know, that's the kind of show that my mom would watch it. Definitely my grandmother would watch it because, yeah. of course, it appealed to their demographic. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, and so I always enjoyed it when it was on. And I remember thinking, like, this this show shouldn't appeal to me because I'm, like, what, nine? Yes. And there's something about it. Uh, it reminds me of some some other shows that, that came to mind, which are, even though they're nothing like it in terms of topic, but I thought of Frasier and the Big Bang Theory. Okay. Because those shows are about people that, you know, Frasier is about a bunch of fancy pants, yeah. erudite people. Right. Big Bang Theory is about a bunch of mega nerds. Right. And so a large portion of your audience is not going to be able to relate yeah. to the things yeah. they're interested in. Right. But, but they they definitely go for the show. And the reason is the show does a good job. Those shows and, and the Golden Girls do a great job of getting your audience to see things from their point of view. Absolutely. And, and like really empathize with them. So, you know, yeah, even though I was this, you know, eight or nine year old yeah. kid, like I was like, I get what these old ladies are laying down. And I think it's aspirational because in a, in a lot of ways, because I think all of us think about, especially when we get older, think about our more, I mean, our mortality becomes more in our, in our psyche and, you know, and getting older and retiring and what, what would we do if we find ourselves alone in retirement? And I think this, you see a group of women that is friendship goals that, you know, shows a different side that TV really has never focused on, you know, this, this, this age group of, of late fifties to, you know, to seventies or eighties, you know, I mean, they're all living together. Um, and I think they do it very, very well. I mean, and they take sort of a, you know, sort of a, uh, you know, something that you've seen a lot, where which is the four female leads, and you've got the you've got the dreamer and Dorothy, who you know, other shows like, let's say Sex in the City, it's a perfect example. I mean, you can see every character in in um, Golden Girls can relate to every character in Sex in the City, as far as you've got the dreamer who's Dorothy, you and uh, Sarah Jessica Parker character you know you've got all of these characters and i think that it just comes from a different different that you're that you're not necessarily used to seeing and i think that that's kind of cool well I, definitely it was revolutionary at the time one you just to have a show that was four female leads at all yes let alone four women in their 60s or older yes where you know you're it, you can picture the network executive going like, but we need someone young and sexy and like, right. you know, the, the show has none of that. Right. And it's, and, but what it does have is it says, but all of these women are still vital. Mm -hmm. And I mean, they have vitality at right. this age and they have, right. they still have wants and needs and desires. Right. And, and that really is the engine that drives the show. And it's so great because under the hood, it's a just a like if you look at like a any pick your favorite well written sitcom of the era. Yeah. Even some of the stuff that like led up to this, like say uh, All in the Family or or Maud, which had B. Arthur on it. Yeah, and Ruben McClanahan. Both right. of them. Yeah, both of them were on it. Yeah. Yeah, like these. Like if you look at the shows that and Mary kinda, Tyler Moore that had Betty White. Um, Betty White. So yeah. Yeah, it's written the same way. Like in terms of the cadence, the way they tell jokes, the yeah. way they engineer plot structures with like an A and a B. This it's classic, you know, sitcom writing one hundred and one. Yes. yes. But you've layered into that these really indelible characters yes. and and this unique kind of setting for mm -hmm. them to 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 kind of have these adventures in. It really, it's, a, it's you've laid this groundwork for this incredible thing. And do you know how, it, like, when you said, like, the old characters and everything, you know how that all came about? Some of it, yeah. I, I thought it was really interesting that, like, uh, you know, to some degree they, they went out and said, like, well, we've seen all of these actresses do things like this before, mm -hmm. so do it again. 
Right. But with like a twist. So go ahead. I know you had something in mind. Well, the well NBC when they were pitching their um, fall season in the like I don't remember nineteen eighty three or eighty four or something. Um, Miami Vice was a big big part of that, and they basically did a spoof with Doris Roberts, who was in Everybody Loves Raymond, and the you know she's been in a bunch of things, and another actress. And they basically, as a spoof, played four women who were playing cards in Miami, and they called it Miami Nice. And everyone in the audience fell in love with it. They fell in love with these four older ladies in Miami playing cards. It was a total joke. I mean, it was never supposed to be, there was not a, it was not a pitch. It was just kind of a, a light moment during this, this, you know, plot season that they were, you know, showing their audience. And that's when they got this idea that maybe, hey, maybe this age group, maybe four women in Miami, there might be something to it. And so I think, uh, Tarkington, who was the who was the head of the NBC. network at the time, yeah. he basically pushed to have, you know, he kind of greenlighted them to start looking for, um, you know, something like this. And Susan Harris, who's one of the writers, you know, she wrote it and she, you know, she she kind of created the show. So it's kind of cool. Yeah, I know the pilot. Uh, the script for the pilot was extremely well received. They were like, "Yes, this is it. We've you know, yes. you've nailed it." Uh, what was funny is I, I when I did a little research, I saw that the original plan was they wanted it to be four women in their forties, mm-hmm. as of course being you know too old to live. Right. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 Um, yeah, yeah, um, but yeah. Thankfully, they had the sense to go, "No, no, women in their sixties. Yes. Yeah. That is better." Right. And they also had a gay cook in the fr- in the in the pilot. There was a gay cook. Right. And they saw how difficult it was. If you, if you watch the pilot, the key has very few lines. It's, I did. It's yeah. very kind of. Um, he's like an awkward. I mean, it, it, it seems like he was. They were trying to get him more lines, but Sophia comes in and she's just a hit. And so then they basically said, "Okay, we're going to focus on Sophia." And it wouldn't have worked because these women are living together because they're they're financially. They need to live. I mean, they would never if there would be a there wouldn't be a situation where if everybody was financially stable, they would all be living together. So and afford a cook and afford a cook. Exactly. Yeah. If you could afford a cook, you probably would be living on your own. Yeah. I watched that pilot episode in preparation for this. And it's weird because all four of the main characters feel like fully formed, like out of the gate. Like this is the four characters I recognize Uh that they're in. But this guy is like. It feels like he he needs more time in the oven to develop as a character, and they yes. just said, "Nah, just get rid of him." Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I I don't know. I mean, yeah, I I don't I don't understand why they ever thought that that would work, but you know, who knows? Well, often like you watch, like if you go back and watch some of the first episodes of sitcoms, they they oh, definitely yeah. are weird looking. Uh, oh, watch yeah. the first episode of Seinfeld, for example. Yeah. It does not resemble the rest of the show. Well, first episode of Roseanne had different had a different um, DJ. And a different actor for DJ, and you you can look at a lot of pilots that have re you know the pilot comes out and then it's kind of different as you know yeah the my, second episode. My favorite one of those that's very strange and jarring is um, House MD. If you watch the first episode of House, uh-huh. they they changed up the cinematography. So in the original episode, like everything is sort of these weird muted like 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 the colors all washed out, but then there's these like bright oranges uh-huh. everywhere uh-huh. it's very hard to look at it's yes. really strange yes and uh, then they get it together and then they're and like they... oh no let's set it in reality where yes yeah, yeah, look yeah. normal yeah. yeah um but getting into the the characters themselves this is a good place to kind of look at do you, do you have a favorite of the four i think i probably relate the most to dorothy i would i would say um my favorite character i think is probably sophia but I think they're all integral to the pl- I mean, you can't, like, have the Golden Girls and not have one of those, the four. And in fact, when the Golden Girls ended, B. Arthur wanted out of her car. She was pretty much done. She was worried. She didn't even want to start the Golden Girls because she felt she was being typecast for Maud. So the fact that B. Arthur went seven, ep- seven seasons was, was incredible enough. But then she said, I'm done. So then there was a spinoff called Golden Palace. Golden Palace, and it 
only went for one season. They tried to put Cheech in as Dorothy. I mean, kind of in a, in a, in a way he was, he was very Dorothy esque, and it just never caught on. I mean, you needed all four characters, but yeah, I mean, I think my favorite Sophia, she's great, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, they do give her so many funny lines. Uh, they, they quickly sussed out, like, okay, her thing is she's going to be the one that has no filter. Well, yeah, she had a yeah. stroke. Apparently she had a stroke that, like, took out the, the part filter. of her brain where it, like, filters. How much? Two bucks. Get wild. Treat yourself. Uh, give you a dollar fifty. What does this look like, Baghdad? Get the hell out of here. Ma, that's no way to sell things. Hey, go to Nima Marcus sometime, see if they treat you any better. Watch what you're grabbing, I got a specimen in there. I wonder what Rose is doing right now. You mean you wonder if she's doing it right now? No, I just wonder if maybe we didn't push her into something too fast. What I can't understand is how in the world she managed to wait 15 years. How long did you wait after George died? Till the paramedics came. My. Yeah, so that yeah. was the, yeah. So I they, don't think they needed a plot explanation for that. I no, think no, I she mean. She just could have been, you know, just had one of those people that doesn't have a filter. Absolutely. That would have been fine. Absolutely. Or she's 80 and she just doesn't give a fuck anymore. Well, and, and the funny thing is, is Stel Getty is Jewish and she felt so, um, see, I think she kind of comes more across as Jewish than she does Italian. And she was Jewish. I mean, she, had, well, yeah, she's dead. So she was Jewish. And one of her biggest issues was I don't know how I'm going to be able to play an Italian why can't we make this character Jewish and if you l listen to all of the kind of the episodes all of her friends are Jewish every name that you know my friend Gladys Goldfine is her best friend I mean you know it's she definitely I, I think she would have been I think it would that's the one thing that I think that they would have done that might have been better if they would have made her Jewish because I think it would have been really even better yeah I don't know that her Italian heritage informs that much of her character or no. her personality so you could have you could have made her anything yeah it wouldn't have mattered but I, I i enjoyed learning that she struggled so much with that role that she was you know she had crippling kind of stage fright yes she and did. a lot of it was anxiety yes. about um working with these heavy hitters in b arthur and betty white that she was just felt like yeah. You know, I'm the odd man out. These two are comic legends. What am I doing here trying to yes. you know, go toe-to-toe yeah. -to -toe with them? But, yeah. you know, she she clearly held her own. And She's, what's funny <laughs> is, is she was, I think, everybody's favorite. Because B. Arthur and Betty White did not get along. In fact, Betty White did liked B. Arthur. B. Arthur wanted nothing to do with Betty White. I mean, they were very, very... If you watch, um, see, like sort of the behind that they did interviews like after so many years and Betty White said, yeah, B. Arthur could not stand me. And so it's interesting that all of them loved, uh, you know, Estelle Getty. And the funny thing is, is Estelle Getty was one of the youngest, if not the youngest. B. Arthur was older than Estelle Getty. Who was playing her mother. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a little like uh, the one I think that comes to mind is the Manchurian Candidate, where the original one where Angela Lansbury is like four years older than the actor playing her son. Yeah. yeah. But she's Angela Lansbury. She's always been old. Just, <laughs> exactly. She was born old. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, th these characters, uh, you, you mentioned Dorothy. Like Dorothy is kind of the leader. She's, she's the Leonardo yes. Yes. of the group. Yes. Um, and she is doing a, a character that's fairly similar to Maude, but I don't know if that's just the way B. Arthur carries herself. I think that is B. Yeah. Arthur. I think yeah. B. Arthur was a very, um, she was very progressive. Um, her big, she was huge in the gay community. In fact, she gave a lot, a lot of money to the gay community and to um, disadvantaged youth. Um, one of the Alley Forney Center, I think she put a lot of money into, which is homeless youth in New York City, homeless uh, LGBT youth in New York City. So she, and in Maude, she was, you know, of course, very liberal. 
liberal woman, and so well, I because think that, that yeah. character was set up to be a foil to Archie Bunker. Yes, so, exactly. Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah, and that was a sp- yeah, that was a spinoff of All in the Family, wasn't it? Right. Or, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, and so it was the Jeffersons. Like they, they yeah, really yeah, worked yeah, that absolutely. franchise. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And yeah, I mean, so Dorothy, she is. I I think she's the dreamer. I mean, and when you that that character, the dreamer being. You can see in most most shows that have the four women format that there is that dreamer. You know, there is that character, like like I said, Sarah Jessica Parker. I think would be kind of the Dorothy character in, in yeah. Sex in the City. Or, if, if there is one of them to call the lead or the protagonist out of the four, it's yes, her. Yes, um, she. It's interesting that you call her the dreamer because she, her persona is so acerbic. Mm-hmm. She, she's constantly delivering these, like, just cutting insults to everybody. Right. If I'd had the money, I could have been living in a swinging condo instead of with... I better not say anything till I've had my coffee. <laughs> a slut and a moron. <laughs> I'm sorry, it must be decaf. Oh, come on, Ma. That superstitious nonsense. You know, step on a crack, break your mother's back. It doesn't work. I know. <laughs> I tried. I think I can handle this relationship with Dork. I'm going out with him Saturday night. Was there ever any doubt? Momentarily. This is strictly off the record, but Dirk's nearly five years younger than I am. <laughs> In what, Blanche? Dog years? What is it? I heard screams. What's happening? No, nothing. Everything's fine, Blanche. We never should have watched Psycho. For 25 years, I have avoided that picture. Even when Stan invited me to the Roxy instead of over to his mother's house for dinner. And it turned out that my instincts were right. Norman Bates is scarier than my (laughs) mother-in-law. And a much better dresser. I never should have watched it either. It always upsets me, especially that shower scene. But it's the reason I prefer not to shower alone. Sure, Blanche. And Goldilocks and the Three Bears is why you prefer not to sleep alone. And it, and but I love when they drop that facade, and you see like it's all kind of a cover because she's very hurt. Even even that that sec. I watched the second episode. Uh Uh, after the pilot and it's about you know her daughter's getting married oh yeah and her crappy ex-husband is coming to be part of the wedding yes and you see her like you know for all of this kind of like front she puts on about how tough she is you can see she's really still just this guy burned her 30 years ago and she's still sore about it yes yeah this is not the life that she had signed up for in the sense but she's always looking kind of past and you see parts of her where she is she lets down that wall and she gets you know she is a you know she does think forward and she thinks of 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 better things i think she constantly wants to find a man who is different than stanley i mean she constantly throughout the season she constantly goes on dates and actually the ending she's, the series finale she gets she, married yeah, yeah she gets married and i think that she balances a lot and she has you know she balances the fact that she has financial woes and and her mother living with her and i think that she always you know tries to look to the best for the best to kind of move on you know she's not i don't think she's content for where she's at i think in terms of the the kind of dramatic elements of the show they make her kind of do the most heavy lifting and maybe they put rose in like second for that but with B. Arthur, like, yes, she has this just masterful comedic timing. She yes. is, you know, just this genius of an actress who's she been around. She, you know, did Mame on Broadway and all this stuff. But she was really, really uh, good at all, for all her chops at delivering these really funny lines and, and nailing the timing. When it comes time for the show to usually delve into something heavier, it usually they put it on her shoulders to do it. And she obviously does it. Perfectly. Yeah. Uh, do you have a, a favorite Dorothy moment from the series or any particularly memorable one? I think Dorothy is sort of the voice of reason in so many different situations. I think she is definitely the most progressive of the four. For instance, when Blanche's brother, 
you know, comes out and says, you know, I'm gay and this is my husband and everything. You know, she's, she's the one to say, you know, it's okay. You know, okay. Let's, you know, move, they're moving these women forward. And I like that. And that's kind of a, uh, flows throughout the series. I think she is the voice of reason. I think she is the, the, like, the dreamer. I think she she is the progressive voice of this of these of these four, and so I and, I, and so I do I like that about her. And you can see that in more specifics in in several episodes um, of her. Um, you know, Blanche's daughter goes and gets inverto feature. You know, um, gets um, in vitro. Uh, in vitro. No, um, she gets artificially inseminated. Oh, okay. And Blanche has a huge problem with that. And at first Dorothy does, but then she talks to Blanche and says, Blanche, there are tons of single mothers and they're doing just fine. When, when Rose is scared of being HIV positive, she says, Rose, HIV is not a bad person's disease, which at the time in the the eighties, it was very much viewed at in a very, there was a huge stigma to HIV and AIDS and was viewed as a bad person's disease. Right. So I think she's saying that, that it's not, and she is, she just is always, she, she was ahead of her time. I think B. Arthur was ahead of her time in the sense of how wonderfully accepting, wonderfully, um, you know, she loved her. She, she, she pretty much loved everyone and she didn't care about the color of your skin or your sexual orientation, or, or, or anything like that. Um, her brother on the show was a cross-dresser, you know, and he wore, um, and so, and she was accepting of that. And, you know, it's just, there's a lot of things that she was very accepting about that I did, that I really liked. They often put her on the forefront of, like, well, who's going to do the act of kindness towards mm-hmm. this, you know, other character? And, yeah, it's usually her kind of swooping in and saying, all right, I'm the mother hen. I'm the yeah. substitute teacher. I'm going to protect right. you. Right. And actually, if you look at it, she's put down a lot. I mean, the the other girls put Dorothy down constantly. Not so much Rose, but Blanche and Sophia. It's like every episode. And that was one of the reasons why B. Arthur was like, I think I'm done. I think she was tired of being put. Like, Dorothy constantly was put down about how she looked, about her dating life, about... Um, pretty much everything, you know, she was constantly put down and she constantly rose above that. And that was kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, good time to maybe transition to one of the other characters we haven't yeah. touched on yet, which is, uh, we haven't really talked a lot about Blanche. Mm-hmm. Um, she's an interesting part of the equation. She is the, the horn dog of the group. Yes. Um, I found out, I thought it was really interesting. So she, she had played a character who was kind of ditzy on uh, an earlier show, which, oh gosh, the name is, I'm blanking on which show it was. And of course, um, Betty White had played the man-hungry yes. character on the Mary Tyler Moore yes. show. Yes, yes, And so, yes. again, brought in, do that thing that you did, do it yeah, again. Right, which is right. how Hollywood operates, right? right? Absolutely. Yeah, so do the thing again. And then at the last minute, they switch roles. Yes. And yes, man, does did. that work so much better. Uh, Betty White, I cannot, I can't pinpoint another actress who can have the blank lights are on nobody's home look like Betty White? I mean, she did that. It her just her facial features when she was. I mean, it was like oh my God, she she passed the totally naive, not too bright kind of you know out of it uh, character that she played. She was great. It's a tricky thing to play someone who is kind of dumb. Um, and do it well because they ask her to deliver lines that are you know because she's saying something stupid. Right. The audience is immediately primed to go like, no one's that stupid. No one would say that, yeah, right? Absolutely. So to deliver that line convincingly, mm-hmm. she kind of like again, she's a master. Yeah. And you watch this. I'm trying to think of other actors who play dumb really well. Uh, one that comes to mind who used to do this very well was uh, was Chris Farley. Yeah, you know, he playing complete moron characters. Yes. Yeah, yeah, he did, he, you know. he he did that really well. Rose, it was she was she could not she could not understand. She was very like it, for instance, if you were to say, "Oh, get out of here," she would leave the room type right. thing. You know, I mean, she couldn't see that there was you know different 
meanings in she couldn't she could only she took everything literally right and I think that and that was how kind of her comedy was was taken around but um yeah no I think she did a great job and I think Blanche did a great job too yeah you know I think she was great because she she you know I have and it's funny because I've known some people five or six people in my life who are absolutely beautiful people who would walk into a room and everyone would look at them. And the funny thing is, is they are the most, um, they have, you know, they're so self-conscious because that, you know, beauty is their, they feel like sometimes that that's their kind of calling card. And Blanche plays that so well because she's so insecure. Girl, this nightgown is so sheer. I believe you can see right through it. <laughs> Hello, Fidel. Hello, Blanche. How are you? You don't have cataracts, you tell me. <laughs> Beat it, you 50-year-old mattress. <laughs> Blanche, Blanche, you know the rules. When one of you is out with Fidel, the other one does not interfere. My apologies. <laughs> now, if you'll excuse me, I'm going to go take a long, hot, steamy bath with just enough water to barely cover my perky bosoms. <laughs> You're only going to sit an inch of water? And you can see it in so many of her interactions. Um, she's this beautiful woman, but she is so insecure and, and has to be the top, you know, has to be the number one person in the room. And, you know, there's a reality of that. I mean, that played so well, I thought. And that's laid out right there in the pilot, which is about her going off to marry some guy she's known for a week, who, of course, turns out to be a bigamist and a, a fraud. Yeah, right, right. Um, but her her inability to be alone, oh, she's yeah. one of those people that's just like, I have to have a, a, a significant other. I have to be in a relationship at all times. She has to because, be with man, yes. Yeah, yes. she can't function outside yeah. of that. And what's great is she has these three women to sort of be her family and back her up when she's not. Yeah. Um, yeah, again, she, she's another character kind of like Dorothy who projects a lot of strength. Yeah. Her, they, those two kind of pair together well because again, she's projecting strength, but inside she's very insecure. Right. Rose is n not insecure. She's, you know, she's very much like everything at face value. Everything. You, know? you get, it, you get what you get. I mean, when you see Rose, that is Rose. There's no, um, male maleficent or like Malevolent? malicious, yeah. malicious agenda at all. I mean, she's just a she's just rose you know yeah. and i don't think she can think past you know that she's just a good person she's a good like wholesome person that you know you would love to be a friend you love to be friends with yeah you know she's a little ditzy and a little kind of but you know if you needed something she'd be there yeah she's incredibly sweet they do write her sometimes i love when they ever talk about uh her her younger life in saint olaf yeah. Oh, yeah. because well, St. Olaf's stories are part of the, are so funny. Those are really funny because they basically write her as if she's from Mars. When I think of my father, I always picture him pulling a giant tuna up Main Street. <laughs> <laughs> well, who doesn't, Rose? <laughs> it wasn't a real tuna. It, it was made of chrysanthemums. It was the float in the Founders Day Parade. You probably don't know this, but my hometown was founded by Heinrich von Andredrenen. <laughs> the first man to ever can tuna in its own natural juices. Anyway, it was the 50th anniversary celebration of the founding of our town. My father was chosen to pull the float. <laughs> he thought it was because he had the newest tractor, but actually it was because he was the only one small enough to fit into the mayonnaise jar costume. <laughs> The, the moment we caught sight of him turning off a sycamore on the elm, something must have happened to the tractor because there he was, this lone little mayonnaise jar, <laughs> dragging this giant tuna up the hill and past the reviewing stand. I don't think I've ever been prouder in my life. That's very touching, Rose. It shouldn't be, but it is. Like, yeah. Whatever goes on in St. Olaf, it's like, it, it always sounds like, you know, where the f 
fuck did you grow up? I, I mean, mean it's it so just funny. yes, it, it's like I mean, and the and the and the people of Saint Olaf are just a bunch of morons. It's like you know, they there was there was one there was one um, episode where they were talking about shoot uh, Rose was in Dorothy was uh, teaching a after school history test because Rose had never graduated college or uh, high school. And she said, um, the, the, uh, there was a German, I, she said that her, her gym teacher was, was really Adolf Hitler and, and he was dating the other person who was Ava Braun. And they said that she said that the Germans focused on St. Olaf as a, a, uh, a location where they could turn American youth against America and be pro-German. And Dorothy was like, "Well, yeah, but they had a, they had a really really good start because everybody's stupid there." And so, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, Saint Olaf is this town that you know you're, you just assume that everyone is like you just a Dorothy. assume everyone is I mean, totally idiot, idiot. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but you know, she's you know she's she's a, such a good person, and you fall in love with her because you know that she's a good person. Yeah, I, I mean that shines through. I think all of them are. Oh uh, yeah, and it would, I think the show would not work if they weren't also supportive of oh, yeah. each other and everyone else. Like yeah. it kind of, um, it, it makes you root for them all the more when you watch them. Kind of, yes, they'll say something kind of biting and funny. Right. They'll deliver these like Groucho Marx zingers right. at each other, uh, especially Sophia. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's always like, but whenever the chips are down. They all, they're, they're, yeah, yeah. They're and they're and they're each other's retirement like plan. You know, they're they're you know they will have this sense that they'll always be together. So because you know two of them are widows and or three of them were widows and Dorothy is a divorcee. Um, you know, you got this. They're all alone in a sense, you know. All of their kids are gone and have moved across the country. And what you know, at that, you know, you're getting to the second half of your life, or you know, and when what do you do? Well, and, that, I mean, yeah, the whole thing is about a second act, right? For yes, all it is a women. second act. That's exactly right. And the thing about it is, is there's been a, been a lot of people who would argue that this in in real life this could never work, you know. Um, four women living in one household and, and being able to, and they do everything together. And I think you have to suspend your disbelief a little bit in that, but I mean, they, if you could find a situation like that, how wonderful would it be? Yeah. What's kind of interesting about the way they're written, they're almost written as if they weren't old Mm -hmm. in terms of like the, the adventures they get into their, whatever the thing is of the week. You know, a, a lot of it's about their dating life. Yeah. And, like, you could almost have the same episode with a bunch of 20-somethings. Yeah. Well, yeah, in could... a lot of ways, you do with Sex in the City. There's a lot of... There are a lot... There is a... I think Sex in the City is very referential to, you know, with, with uh, Golden Girls. Yeah. Well, they sort of set a template, for sure. Yeah. The other shows would follow. But yeah. I, I kind of like that because, again, it's like... You imagine the writers going like, "All right, well, what are we going to have these old biddies do?" Absolutely, but they don't. It's like, no. "Oh no, they're they're going out on the town. They're doing stuff. They're you know, they they don't treat them as if, well, you turn sixty and then that's it. Your they life is over. Yeah, you you can have a sex life. Even Sophia has a sex life, and she's in her eighties. Right. So I think it. Yeah, I think it. It where I think it really taught. America that you don't your sex life and everything your life doesn't end when you turn 60 or you when you turn you know 50 you can you make life what you want of it I mean it, life is as good as you make it and it you know it shows that these women are still vital um, and it shows that 60 year old I mean I, I think it just I just showed America a different side of aging a once forgotten group of people frankly and this golden girls are now geez you know at 50 you know oh maybe you know you know your life doesn't end at 60 it's one of the few things i I can't think of too many uh movies or shows 
that focus on old people at all. First of no. all, they're generally not regarded at all. Right. You know. Right. So, right. To, so to do like the, the last thing I can think of that came before this that was like about a collection of old people was Cocoon. Right. You know, that's like, a, yeah, yeah. That's right. A little bit of it's, it's a, yeah, like yeah. again, these people are all basically shuffling out the door, but then thankfully aliens come yeah, to make exactly, them young, young again. Exactly, exactly. Um, but yeah, like ever, you would think that since the Golden Girls, there would have been another show where it's like, let's do a show about, or a movie about a bunch of old people and them being, feeling, you know, vital and young. And there haven't been too many good ones. There, you know? I mean, there haven't been too many good ones. There have been ones like, I um the book club I think was with right. Diane I mean Diane Keaton seems to do that she she has a lot of movies like that where yeah. it's her and you know I don't know uh, Mary Steenburgen and <laughs> and uh, Candace uh, uh, from um, what's her what's her last name I can't even remember and Jane Fonda were in one that was kind of, I mean which There's, you can you can like, point yeah. out exactly. Who you know? Part they basically took Golden Girls and they took those four characters and they made them into this 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 movie called and Designing Women was another one, which there was four four older women and yeah. I mean, it, there's uh, there's the bucket list, you know. There's there's yeah, things like that. Yeah. Um, but this is the only one. First of all, this is by far the most fun and I think the most yeah. successful. Oh yeah. Um, both. I mean, commercially, but also I I think. Because it, it presents these characters as so human. Yes. Um, and it's just well-written and funny on top of that. Yeah. Like, this is like, I can't think of anything that does this kind of concept better than this does. No, no. And I think I think it would be very hard, you'd be hard-pressed to find a show that has been so, has been popular in so many different generations. For I mean... Hulu just brought back the Golden Girls, and there's a whole new generation that probably had never seen it, and now the whole thing is on Hulu, and so I know a lot of younger people, I can't tell you how many times I'm walking around and I see a young guy or a young girl with a Golden Girls shirt on, or they dress up as them for Halloween, or, you know, it's definitely hit a much, much younger audience. It's transcended, you know, it's... um, not only their age group, but it's transcended different generations. Yeah. And that's huge, I think. I mean, they still have, you know, remained kind of, you know, part of our cultural fabric. Like, I remember uh, going online, like, I keep seeing, I guess Facebook knows me too well, (laughs) because they keep seeing these ads pop up for various hilarious t-shirts. And one of them is, uh, just says, thank you for being a friend, uh-huh. but it's the Ninja Turtles font. And then it has all four of the Golden Girls, yeah. in, like, you know, oh, with yeah. the, mashed with the Ninja Turtles. Oh, yeah. And I've seen um, Shady Pines' ma, like, shirts about, you know, her sending her mom to the to the old person's home. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, I see, I see Golden Girls merch a lot. It's one of the few sitcoms from the 80s that I think you, you do see that mm-hmm. for. I mean, there's a lot of, there were a lot, I think of all the really popular, great sh- uh, sitcoms from the 80s, and almost none of them have this kind of staying power that, no. are, that people would still go back to. Like, right. maybe Cheers, until recently, The Cosby Show. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Uh, until recently, Roseanne. I mean, Roseanne yeah. was part, and I think... She was in a little bit of the eighties, yeah. Yeah, I mean that that shows. I mean, they tried, they did revive it without her, but like, you don't see people walking around with like Roseanne shirts. You would see, like I said, you'd see this Golden Girls merch. Yeah. You see this oh, like yeah. love for them. Oh yeah. Um, because I think there's such a universal appeal about yeah. the show and the characters. Mm-hmm. But yeah, from that era, like it's weird that that's one of the few. That's there's really very persistent. very few. I mean, even like something like Miami Vice that was so popular in the eighties. Yeah. I, couldn't tell you anything about the Miami Vice because it's not on anymore. Yeah, no one cares about it. No Nobody one, cares no one, about it's, it. it it's, yeah. its cultural footprint has just faded away. has faded away. And yeah. this seems to have, you know, persevered. It's I would put it up with, like, Friends and, you know, some of those, those sitcoms, Seinfeld, those sitcoms that are in syndication that have made a ton of money in syndication because they're still so relevant. I mean, I, yeah, there's something about them that that's, like, Oh, let's let's do a binge watch of a comedy, right? Let's yeah. just we'll work our way through a show, right? And this is probably one of the ones that's farthest back in time, yeah. That people would still want to do that for. Like yeah. I said, this one maybe cheers the Wonder Years, but the Wonder Years isn't. 
That's a dramedy too. Like, I mean, you turn on thing. you turn on TV Land, and sometimes during the day they're showing Golden Girls, or or you know you can you if you go on your cable and you press menu, there are a lot of times that you're going to see the Golden Girls, right? Still being played. You're not seeing Miami Vice. You're not seeing Dallas or Dynasty or whatever other you know major '80s. I don't know, Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman or whatever else was during that time. Yeah, well, I think it goes back to what you kind of said earlier about the show being a little bit ahead of its time. It was. Like, it feels of its time when you watch it, how it looks, the way it looks the, and sounds the way a sitcom from the mid-80s looks and sounds. But like you said, the 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 kind of unusual nature of the, the premise and the heart in the show and the... Mm-hmm those times where they would take time out to do a more daring subject matter. That, oh yeah. You know, maybe other shows wouldn't do. Mm-hmm. I, I'm sure that comes from the, the DNA, the fact that you have people left over from, like you said, Maude and all in the family, because that's what those shows did. Yeah. They, yeah. those shows were at their best when they really pushed boundaries. You know, I mean, not, the, not to steer this into an all in the family discussion, but like, you know, there's that famous episode of all in the family where, uh, Edith nearly gets raped. There's an episode yeah. of All in the Family. Obviously, they dealt with race all the time, constantly. Um, yeah. You know, and and there is that DNA is still in the Golden Girls as well. Like they will, they will do that. And I wonder if that's just literally the the stars like B. Arthur saying like we need to talk about this thing. She did, as she absolutely mm-hmm. did. And it was the also the writers. So Susan Harris, one of one of the things that um, Susan Harris went through was. It was a disease called chronic fatigue syndrome. And at the time, really nobody knew about it. So she basically, there's two episodes where Dorothy deals with this. And she goes from doctor to doctor to doctor. And everybody's telling her there's nothing wrong. It's in your head. Um, And then she finally finds a doctor who is like, yes, this is actually something. This is a real, real disease. And, you know, I think... And you have it, and then she feels so much better because now she knows what she has. Dr. Bud? Yes. You probably don't remember me, but uh, you told me I wasn't sick. Do you remember? You told me I was just getting old. I'm sorry, I really don't remember. Maybe you're getting old. (laughs) That's a little joke. Well, I tell you... Dr. Bud, I really am sick. I have chronic fatigue syndrome. That is a real illness. You can check with the Center for Disease Control. Oh, well, I'm sorry about that. Well, I'm glad. At least I know I have something. I'm sure. Well, nice seeing you. Not so fast. (laughs) There are some things I have to say. There are a lot of things that I have to say. Words can't express what I have to say. What I went through, what you put me through, I can't do this in a restaurant. Good. But I will. Lois, who is this person? Look, miss, sit. I sat for you long enough. (laughs) Dr. Bud, I came to you sick. Sick and scared. And you dismissed me. You didn't have the answer. And instead of saying, I'm sorry, I don't know what's wrong with you, you made me feel crazy, like, like I had made it all up. You dismissed me. You made me feel like a, a child, a, a fool, a neurotic who was wasting your precious time. Is that, is that your caring profession? Is that healing? No one deserves that kind of treatment, Dr. Bud. No one. I suspect had I been a man, I might have been taken a little bit more seriously and not told to go to a hairdresser. Look, I am not going to sit here anymore. Shut up, Lois. I don't know where you doctors lose your humanity, but you lose it. You know, if all of you at the beginning of your careers could get very sick and very scared for a while, you'd probably learn more from that than anything else. You'd better start listening to your patients. They need to be heard. They need caring. They need compassion. They need attending to. You know, someday, Dr. Bud, you're going to be on the other side of the table. And as angry as I am, and as angry as I always will be, I still wish you a better doctor than you were to me.
I think also, I think how many people, how many of us have, you know, maybe not even our health. How many times, how many of us have gone, have had a, a, a sound on our cars and we can't recreate it. And people are like, oh, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong. And you finally find that person that's like, yes, there is something wrong. It's your whatever. And everyone can, can I think, relate with that, you know, and, um, and that was, and, you know, and chronic fatigue syndrome is now recognized illness. And, and you know, th- th- those types of things, they dealt with real life things that were going on. And Miami was in that time was full of news. I mean, Miami didn't have a great reputation then. I mean, they was dealing with the, co- I mean, that's all with the cocaine wars and everything. Uh, Miami was filled with violence. And I think this being in Miami kind of showed a different side of Miami, which kind of helped. But yeah, I, th- I mean, I think it's, I mean, they dealt with a lot of, a lot of things that were going through their lives at the time. And they made it into a theatrical and funny way. Yeah. And I think that what you just described is kind of a bit of the show in microcosm where, again, you've got this show about four people in this um, cohort that society tends to society tends to ignore. One hundred percent. And so this is like you said, like so people not listening to Dorothy or taking her seriously. Like that's true of all four of these women. That so so often the elderly are just overlooked. They're not. Oh yeah, I mean they know. try to get jobs, and in the show, you know, uh, Rose was having a hard time getting a job because of her age. Right. You know, and they assumed, oh, because you're in an advanced age, you can't perform correctly. Right. You, know, you can't perform like a twenty-something. And Dorothy is, you know, a teacher, and she's working with twenty-something. I mean, it's it it is it 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 shows that life doesn't end at 45 or 50 where I right. think a lot of people tend to think it, it definitely changes at least. The show also has uh, as a secret weapon, probably one of the best theme songs. Yes. Oh yeah. I mean, it's a great theme song. We use it at our wedding. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. We had people, uh, part of the introduction where they were bringing yeah. everybody into our reception. Yeah. Not, and I didn't realize this. I thought this was written for the show. It's not, it's a cover. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. not written for the show. Yeah. But it was, I mean, what a perfect, I mean, it's just perfect, the perfect, perfect song. And if you've never heard the original, I'll have to slip that into the, the, the show here somewhere. I'll put a clip of that. Thank you for being a friend. Travel down a road and back again. Your heart is true. You're a pal and a confidant. Shame to say, I hope it always will stay this way. My hat is off, won't you stand up and take a bow? By Andrew Gold is his name. One of these forgotten singer songwriters yeah. of the seventies. But he, he turned out this nugget. Yeah, uh, and it's uh, it's really fun. I I would put this up against really any of the uh, the great TV theme songs. In fact, that's kind of a lost art. There's I, there's very few sitcoms that even have a theme anymore. Yeah, um, yeah. Let alone a, a song with yeah. actual lyrics. Right, right. Uh, I mean. I'm trying to think of some others that are like, I mean, again, yeah, the Friends one is probably an all-timer. Um, yeah, I think that's probably the number one by the Rembrandts. I think that's got to be up there. And I think Gilligan's Island was has, the other to one be, I thought of. has to be like the up Bunch there. Too. Yeah, the Brady Bunch. I mean, there, but those, I mean, Gilligan's Island obviously was written directly for Gilligan's Island. It would be but, weird if it wasn't. I mean, it <laughs> yeah. would be really, really weird. Exactly, exactly. So, yeah, but you're right. New shows don't, they might have like a instrumental. They have a sting, and, maybe. Yeah, but it's nothing like, nothing like that. No, I, I mean there, there are there have you know, there are a few shows recently I can think of that have interesting introductions or theme music like 
Game of Thrones comes to mind. Is, you but know, it's mostly visual it, now. There's, there's no lyrics to that. There's yeah. no lyrics at all. And I don't know if that's a royalty issue or I don't know what what the reasoning is. I don't know if they... I think people probably just think it's old-fashioned at this point to have you know a 45-second song play while they show you the credits. Yeah. I, I would challenge... Uh, I would challenge that. I would think you know it's really fun to have a hooky, memorable song. The last, I do too. The last sitcom I can think of that did it was Big Bang Theory... Uh, and that show's getting pretty old now. That's, yeah. You know, a couple, yeah, yeah. You know, but even that theme song is—it's about 17 seconds long, yeah. or something. It, right. You know, it's, uh, but I can't think of any others. No, the only—the only thing I can think of now are, are commercials like car dealerships that have has like these jingles and stuff like that that have kind of. But I see. I think I think a song is his music is so. I, I don't know. I think I think it works well but there's something about a tv show that there's a little bit of a ritual involved especially back then when you know you couldn't just binge it you would have to wait okay it's thursday yeah, night uh-huh. at 9 30 it's on right, right right um and you would hear that song so again it was like a part of the ritual like just with any religious ceremony or something you're, you're repeating this thing well i remember you know? i mean when i was a little boy i loved three's company and they've got sure. another great uh great theme song come and knock on my door yeah knock, yeah so, yeah, I know. And, and I think, you know, when you hear it, it, it automatically makes you think of Reed's Company, you know. Yeah, although none of them will be the best uh, TV theme song, which is the one for Lost. I... Uh... <laughs> I believe that's the theme song. Is that it? It's that sound as the word Lost appears on the okay, screen. Okay, okay, yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, not, uh, not, not, the, not the most uh, catchy. No. Um, so, uh, before we kind of wrap this up, uh, any, uh, any kind of closing thoughts on, uh, on the Golden Girls? I think that they, you know, they've done so many, so many things well, and they were so ahead of their time. Um, I think that, you know, for a show to have fans that are, you know, in their 80s all the way to fans who are in their teens is, you know, it's, and has stand the test of time, I think is almost, you know, is not common these days, you know. Um, and I just, I just, I just think it's a great show. And I think um, the subject matter and the, the class in which they deal with their problems is so wonderful. And I love shows that take really difficult topics like, you know, uh, things that the cultural, cultural things at that time that are going on and are able to make them funny and make light of them, but do address them. And that's kind of what the Golden Girls does. You know, I think, I think you're right. And I think the Golden Girls has the staying power it has because there aren't a lot of works of fiction that kind of, deal with make you look at mortality head on yeah absolutely. Uh, and it's something we you know it's always there in the back of your mind yes oh, that's and, a good point yeah and i think when works of fiction play on that in an effective way it, mm-hmm. it really resonates like i we did yeah. an, i did an episode of the show on on the fly mm-hmm. which is metaphorically about the same thing yeah obviously it's a very different genre it's horror <laughs> yeah right but it, it it's that that movie when you after you watch it will stay with you not just because it's gross but because it it is hitting you over the head with like, yeah, you're going to decay and die someday. Yes. This yes. is, this is the best you can hope for. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, uh, that's horror. And, and on the other end of the spectrum, you have this where it's saying, you know, yes, you're going to get older, but you know, getting older is not the end. It's, yeah. You know, there's, there's life a whole, goes on. Life there's goes a on. life after you turn 50, 50 is, or, you know, turns, I guess they think they were supposed to be in their fifth, like late fifties or, even an 80-year-old, look at all that Sophia did. She was the most, she was a very active 80-something-year-old. And she was obviously, in real life, she was a lot younger. But, I mean, to show an 80-year-old that ha- still has a sex life, still get, goes and, you know, goes out every day, volunteers, I mean, has a group of friends, all of that and stuff. And her mind is sharp as a tack. And her mind is sharp as a tack. Now, that's more biological, and she's very lucky about that. But... It shows that the eight year, as you get older, you can still very much function in life. And I think that that's kind of a wonderful, it's aspirational for all of us. 
Cool. Well, I, I think that's a, a great place to end this. Uh, Ryan, thank you for being a friend and coming on. Oh, yeah. Anytime. Um, anytime. Was, I can do a – yeah, we can figure out another one, and I'm I'm always here. Yeah, absolutely. This was, this was a treat. Um, I do need to do a little quick admin here. So if you like the show, uh, you know what to do because you've heard a podcast before. Go wherever you found it. Uh, subscribe and rate it highly and uh, tell everybody you know. Um, and also I should plug the next week's episode, which is going to be, uh, we're turning away from the 80s after spending some time there. We're going to the 90s and it's time to bust out our flannel because we're going to talk about grunge. And uh, that will be a good time. I have a, a buddy coming on that who's uh, very, very knowledgeable about music and he can fill in all the gaps about the musical details that I cannot uh, other than saying like, yeah, man, Nirvana was cool. Um, so look forward to that. And uh, that will be one more entry in the Nostalgium Arcanum. Well. Well. Yeah. I guess this is it. Right. Listen. Dorothy, you don't have to say anything. I mean, what can you say about seven years of fights and laughter, secrets, cheesecake? Yeah. Just that... uh, it's been very, um, well, it's been an experience that I'll always keep very close to my heart. And that these are memories that I'll wrap myself in when the world gets cold and I forget that there are people who are warm and loving and... We love you too. <laughs> Oh, I'll miss you. You will always be a part of us. Your friendship was something I never expected at this point in my life, and I could never have asked for a better surprise. That's how we feel, too. I have to go. Dorothy, is this goodbye? I love you, always.